0: You're listening to the NACOcast, coming to you from Canada's National Arts Centre in Ottawa. My name is Christopher Millard. Thomas Dausgaard has been called a conductor of rare conviction and insight. He became chief conductor of the Swedish Chamber Orchestra in 1997, and seven years later became chief conductor of the Danish National Symphony Orchestra. Both have developed impressively under his leadership, and last summer at the BBC proms they were a sensation with audience and critics alike. Thomas Dausgaard has toured and recorded extensively with both of these orchestras. With the Danish National, he released the final part of his recorded cycles of works by Langar. And with the Swedish Chamber Orchestra, Dausgaard last season released Schubert's Symphonies 8 and 9. Maestro Dausgaard guest conducts many of the world's leading orchestras. This season's highlights include engagements with the SWR Stuttgart, the MDR Leipzig, the Barcelona and Swedish radio symphony orchestras, and he regularly collaborates with the Vienna Symphony Orchestra at the Musikverein and the Vienna Konzerthaus. In coming seasons, Thomas Dausgaard will work with the Royal Philharmonic, the Royal Liverpool Philharmonic, the City of Birmingham Symphony, and the Bournemouth Symphony. He also conducts the Sydney Symphony Orchestra, and the New Japan, Hong Kong, and China Philharmonic Orchestras. In North America, he's worked with the Philadelphia Orchestra, the Los Angeles Philharmonic, the Boston Symphony, and the Toronto Symphony. This is a busy conductor. Mr. Dowsgaard has also been awarded the Cross of Chivalry in Denmark, and was elected to the Royal Academy of Music in Sweden. Thomas Dousgaard conducted our National Arts Center Orchestra just a few weeks ago in a concert that included Sibelius's first symphony, and graciously found some time in his busy schedule to speak about the work with Paul Wells. Now many of you know Paul Wells as a highly regarded columnist for Maclean's magazine, where most of the time he writes about politics and national affairs. What you may not know is. If you're in Ottawa and happen to be looking for Paul on a Wednesday or Thursday evening, it's fairly likely you'd find him in the seats of Southam Hall at a National Arts Centre Orchestra concert. Yes, he's a rabid and knowledgeable classical music fan, and he's also a very engaging speaker. A podcast recording of a talk he gave during the Mozart Haydn Festival earlier this year was one of our most popular NACO So, in conversation with Thomas Dousgaard, here is Paul Wells.
1: The great thing about listening to music is that we can address it on any terms we like. It's not church. This, These pieces aren't great uh, majestic wonders that we're not allowed to criticize uh, or think about. For ourselves, and I've been thinking about these big considerations of how do we approach music and so on. Because I've been thinking a lot about Sibelius's first symphony. The reason I've been thinking about Sibelius's first symphony is because the NAC Orchestra, with guest conductor Thomas Tausgaard is going to be performing it on May twenty fifth and twenty sixth at the NAC. I'm a huge fan of Sibelius, but I don't think of his music as being perfect. It's uh, he, the, the the first symphony. Especially is the work of a young composer. Uh, he was thirty-three at the time. Uh, he wrote it in eighteen ninety-eight, uh, and it has the characteristics of the work of a young composer. It's an eager work. Uh, twice in the first two movements, he instructs the conductor not to dawdle, not to go too slowly in conducting it. He wants to keep a certain pace, a certain rhythm to it, and it also has some of the weaknesses of youth. It. For my mind, it's a little over the top, it's a little overwrought, it's kind of crash and bang music, Um, but it has also some of the insights of youth. There's a few moments in this first symphony that suggest to us that we are in the hands of uh, a genius, an unformed, imperfect genius, but a genius all the same. Uh, I was lucky enough recently to talk to Thomas d'Ausgard about the Sibelius symphonies, and Obviously, he doesn't share my concerns that this this is the work of of an unformed, imperfect uh, master because Dasgaard conducts Sibelius for a living and treats it with the proper respect. And he told me that he sees the symphonies, there are seven in total, as the hallmarks, one after the other, of the development of Sibelius's career.
2: I think um, uh, the symphonies... uh uh, are the um, main stepping stones in, uh, in uh, Sibelius' composing career. Uh, they they uh, carry through his whole, whole uh, composing life and give us a very broad picture. At the same time, it's a really uh, unifying uh, picture we get from it because there are some elements which are introduced already here in the first symphony which um, he elaborates and elaborates and elaborates right through to the last one.
1: I want to show you what Dasgard was talking about there when he talks about that clarinet solo at the beginning. It's almost one of the most lonely and, and contemplative moments in music that I'm aware of, and it's a huge surprise. This is a guy who's going to be uh, um, showing off with a lot of spark and flash for a half hour with tremendous musical forces, and yet he begins his symphony with a solo clarinet, almost kind of wandering uh, through a frozen landscape. And now I'll skip ahead a little bit, almost to the end of the symphony, the fourth movement, uh, 20 minutes later, after an awful lot of stuff has happened, the fourth movement comes along and it brings back that same melody that the clarinet was playing, except it's played this time by the entire orchestra in extremely dramatic style. So that's the thematic unity of the whole piece, that wandering, uh, meditative clarinet line at the beginning that comes back near the end, only this time it's the entire orchestra playing it, and its whole mood has transformed. That's one of three or four, I think, strokes of genius uh, in this first Sibelius symphony. Uh, Another one comes at the beginning of the second movement, the slow movement, although being Sibelius, he warns us that it shouldn't be too slow. Uh, It's a very simple folk melody, but um, it's extremely affecting. Uh, You can't get it out of your head once you've heard it. And Sibelius knows this, and he repeats it again and again, uh, because he knows that this melody has its own simple charms. Uh, And it's almost certainly one of the parts of the symphony that you'll remember the most when you leave the hall at the end of the night. Now, as you can probably already tell, the music of Sibelius has a certain personality. Uh, There's a kind of a clarity to it, uh, a kind of a a, a simplistic uh, nature to it. It's not miles deep like Brahms and thick as soup. There's something of the clear northern air to it. And in fact, um, when I asked Maestro d'Ausgard what makes Sibelius's music, particularly Nordic, uh, he had an answer for me. Maestro Dosgaard is from Denmark. He conducts one of the leading orchestras in Sweden, and uh, he has, uh, on occasion, conducted all of the Sibelius symphonies, uh, and so he's very familiar with the music of this Finn. And what does a Danish guy working with a Swedish orchestra, uh, conducting the music of a Finn, uh, feel in terms of his affinity for this music? Uh, What does he have in common with the vision of Sibelius, it's that sense of nature and of the wide open spaces of the north. Uh, here's uh, Thomas Dasgaard talking to us about that.
2: What unifies us in uh, in Scandinavia and uh, I think unifies us with with uh, uh, other people in that uh, northern part of the world is the um, nature and the light around it. Because what is characteristic for us and other places uh, that high up is uh, the long uh, sunrise and the long dusk. The the long time of the day where there is uh, a special kind of magic in the light, where your imagination flows perhaps even more freely, where you might see uh, odd creatures uh, not possible to see in in full daylight. Um, It's a a time for imagination.
1: Now, Because Sibelius is Finnish, one of the most famous uh, exports from a very small country, uh, he's often uh, held up as a sort of a patriotic standard by Finns, especially because at the time that he was writing this music, uh, Finland was under Russian domination. It was essentially a uh, colonized and oppressed country. And so there's a, a nationalistic streak to the appreciation of Sibelius among his fellow Finns. And not surprisingly, this can be kind of off-putting uh, to modern Finns who think that nationalist display and sentiment is uh, is uh, is um, hokey and old-fashioned. Um, the first time I ever heard Sibelius's first symphony, it was in a performance by the Los Angeles Philharmonic a few years ago under the baton of Esa-Pekka Salonen, the great former music director of the LA Philharmonic. He's from Finland too. And yet, he was only now, at the end of his career with the L.A. Philharmonic, turning to Sibelius's music. Uh, he was past 50 years old at the time. He'd been conducting since he was in his early 20s, since he was a kid. And he'd never really taken Sibelius's music seriously. But as he grew older and wiser and more able to approach music on its own terms, the way we're approaching Sibelius's music today, he was able to kind of reach his own accommodation with Sibelius's music and he, and with the L.A. Philharmonic, he he produced some just fantastic performances of this symphony. Um, but I asked Douscard also about this relationship of Sibelius to politics uh, and international intrigue. Uh, and like Sibelius himself, who hated this attempt to sort of recuperate his music for nationalist ends, Dausgaard also doesn't buy it.
2: Regardless of the political situation, he would probably have been very inspired by the uh, traditional legends of his, of his country. They're very strong, very powerful, a bit like the sagas of Iceland. Um, and, uh, uh, of course, when, when you have a tense political situation, yeah, you probably turn back to, to your, your, your own history. But I think his attraction to this was, was there regardless of the political situation, and people around him were, were clever in using it for, for whatever purpose they, they saw fit. Uh, and uh, uh, I think to some extent he joined it, but, but uh, again it, it probably wasn't his reason for exploring this, this uh, world of legends. That was what his temperament and his, uh, his basic interests also were.
1: Let me get back to another one of these special moments in Sibelius's first symphony that to me make it a memorable uh, piece of music. That's the sort of scherzo movement, the second last movement of the piece, uh, which is fast and, and fun. It's almost like chase music from a, from a Spielberg movie. Uh, it's got a bit of a Hollywood feel to it. One of the things I like the best in this short extract that you're going to hear is the way that Sibelius throws in the timpani, the kettle drum, the big tunable drum at the back of the orchestra, as almost part of the uh, one of the melody instruments. There's this, you know, five six note theme dum 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 dum, which is played by the strings and by the brass, and then uh, and, and then by the timpani. Uh, it's very clever, very surprising, and it and it and it brings a note of fun to what is in most other ways a kind of a sad bittersweet uh, piece of music so we'll listen to that now. One of the things that has struck me the most as I listened to several different performances of the Sibelius symphonies is that they can be as different as night and day. They're uh, sometimes um, played with an almost kind of military precision and a, and a, and a sort of a, uh, a neon-bright clarity to the execution. Sometimes, even under the batons of great conductors, uh, there's a sort of a ramshackle, uh, informal folk uh element to the way that the, that the music is played. Um, tempos are wildly different from one interpretation to the next. Um, there's a lot of different parts playing at the same time in Sibelius's symphonies, and it's always striking to me that depending on who's conducting and, of course, which orchestra is playing, uh, a, a different um, line within the whole will pop out uh, in one interpretation and not so much in the other. So in, in you, you listen to the same symphony, and the cellos are the stars in one performance, and then the trumpets are the stars in another guy's performance. I, I mentioned this to Thomas Dowsgard and he agreed with me, and he said that this is actually uh, another part of the charm of Sibelius, is you can listen to the same piece played uh, very well by two different, very good orchestras, and it will come out sounding like very different pieces, because The interpretation that you bring to it matters a lot more with Sibelius than with certain other composers.
2: Yeah, he um, he himself uh, said that uh, he is quoted saying that he enjoyed the uh, the uh, many different interpretations possible of say also the first the first symphony. Some would do it in a Tchaikovsky manner. Some would do it in an operatic manner. Some would do it very lyrically. He enjoyed it. He enjoyed it all, and the, the possibility that it could take it. And actually, that is the strength of of, of um, uh, some repertoire, which really can can survive the treatment in of, in many different ways.
1: And then, at the very end of the symphony, after all of this drama and uproar and kind of nervous energy of youth has been expended, there is one more moment of surprise and, frankly, guts. Uh, it's at the very end of the piece, and I'll let. Maestro D'Oscar tell you about that.
2: I'm also thinking of of something else which is uh, courageous of a uh, kind of young uh, uh, composer, Um, and that is uh, ending the symphony softly. Though there's a huge outburst right before the end, it actually uh, comes down to a very soft chord at the very end.
1: And now I'll let you hear what he's talking about. This is the very last several seconds of the Symphony. There's all that crashing around, and then the surprising moment of intimate calm at the very last bars. So that's Sibelius' first symphony, uh, a kind of a wild ride at the uh, concert hall, but also a series of glimpses into the mind of a young composer who was able and willing to think for himself. It's the kind of moment that we can never have enough of at the concert hall, and it's why, like probably some of you, I'm very much looking forward to hearing the NEC Orchestra play this first great Sibelius symphony under the baton of Thomas Dausgaard at the National Arts Center. I'm Paul Wells, thanks very much.
0: Well, that's it for today's NACOcast. Please stay tuned for our next edition, which will once again feature Paul Wells, and this time in conversation with Dwayne Wolfe, director of the Chicago Symphony Chorus. They'll be speaking about the Ode to Joy from Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Thanks for listening.